This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is October 29th, 2021, and this is episode 263. I'm Stratal Boom. And I'm Ian Bushfield. Before we even jump into anything, I do want to report that, as many people have heard yesterday, John Horgan announced that he had caught a lump in his throat and was going to be operated on, and thankfully today, that operation has been described as successful quite a prominent kind of surgery to have to go into. We don't know anything more than that, but lumps in throats can be uh, really bad. Yes, and uh, I believe it was his brother who passed away from uh, cancer uh, a couple years back. Uh, So obviously, this is of particular concern, given that some of these cancers can be genetic. So yeah, we're hoping for the best from both of us to the Premier for a speedy recovery. Yeah. The interesting political note in there is that he named Mike Farnworth as Deputy Premier. I think everyone had forgotten we haven't had a Deputy Premier since Carol James stepped down prior to the previous election. Uh, you don't really need a Deputy no, Premier. And like, on- it's not a constitutional post the way Vice President or Lieutenant or Lieutenant Governor, I suppose is how the Americans would say it. And do you know who the previous second minister, according to the order and council, was before Mike Farnworth was? It was Carol James, wasn't it? There was an interim. Mike Farnworth actually replaces Adrian Dix as second minister. Selena Robinson remains third minister in the province. Huh. Who knew? In any way, on today's show, we're going to get into some BC politics. There's a lot more happening in the province. Lots of bills coming, including some prominent changes to how cities might run. Uh, Actually, they're not that prominent. And a change in the federal cabinet. As always, thank you to everyone who contributes to keep this show going every month or annually. You can join them, get in in our Slack, get an ad-free version. Go to patreon.com slash politicoast. Politicoast is in partnership with BC Today, British Columbia's daily newsletter dedicated exclusively to BC politics. Sign up for a free trial to have unique coverage of the BC legislature delivered to your inbox every morning. Listeners to Politicoast, enter the offer code CITIZEN for access to a special rate. For your free two-week trial of the newsletter, go to politicstoday.news slash free dash trial. But before we get into the news of the week, let's round up quickly the greatest Breezy Premier Bracket. Last week, we put Gordon Campbell up against Christy Clark. I screwed up on the Twitter poll and it only ran for 24 hours, I think. But thankfully, Richard Zussman gave us a retweet, so we had our most votes yet. It was almost a close poll, but not quite. Gordon Campbell ran away with it 177 to 130. So again, sorry to anyone who wasn't able to vote. We'll make sure that's fixed this time. But this week, we're going to put up a couple more modern NDP premiers. Ujal Dessange versus John Horgan. Dessange was the 33rd premier serving from February 24th, 2000 to June 5th, 2001, which I'll note is actually on par with many of those nonpartisan premiers and longer than many of them. We, we forget how long Ujal actually served. It was more than a year. <laughs> he won the leadership and the premiership after Glenn Clark resigned. He defeated Ken- 
candidates Corky Evans and Gordon Wilson. Joy McVale was also in that race, but she dropped early and endorsed Assange. When he won, he became Canada's first Indo-Canadian provincial leader. I think I mentioned before he was previously Attorney General in the cabinets of Harcourt and Clark. Desange inherited a really unpopular party. There were polls that put the NDP at about 15% when Glenn Clark had resigned, which is... Wow, that's like UC- that's like Alberta UCP territory. Almost. I think they still have a little bit more support than that, but that's like the highs of the BC Greens. Dossange actually managed to start to turn the ship around, and he managed to get the popularity up to 21% by August 2000. He was lucky in that this was the dot-com and oil and gas booms of the early aughts where he was able to actually increase spending by 8% while still maintaining a balanced budget. This meant he could throw money at hospitals, schools, universities, lower tuition fees, and try to reverse some of the cuts his predecessors had implemented to try to keep things under control. On the other hand, he was also the first premier in Canada to march in a gay pride parade, and he extended couples' equal rights under the definition of Spouse Amendment Act. A few other bills he passed were the Tobacco Damages and Healthcare Recovery Act that allowed people to sue tobacco companies, the Sex Offender Registry Act, and the first anti-slap law, which was later repealed by Gordon Campbell. Nevertheless, the election didn't go well for Dessange, and he could not gain ground. It went so bad, in fact, he conceded a week before the vote, which is a hell of a strategy. At, at that point, it really was a save-the-furniture move. Yeah, they just looked at Metro Vancouver, and they went, how many can we keep? We need to have someone. They ended up keeping two, two. yeah, which is probably less than they'd hoped. Yeah, was it Vancouver, Mount Pleasant, and I want to say New West, I think, were the two seats they kept? The seats that you could run, you know, a cardboard cutout in and it would win if it was painted orange. Oh, every party loves those seats. Dessange pretty much left the NDP that night and he would go on to become a federal liberal member of parliament. He was reportedly approached by Jack Layton to join and run for the NDP, but refused that directly. He would become a federal minister of health and he is now retired and you can find his opinions on Twitter. Sometimes. He's not an anti-vaxxer or anything like Bill Vanders am, at least. No, but he does have the like, occasionally spicy take. I, I, I actually don't follow him. I He's an interesting but, guy. Uh, I, yeah, I, I gather he is, yeah, interesting and, yeah, occasionally heated takes. On the other side of this challenge, we have the current premier, John Horgan. It was a bit of a controversial decision to put the current premier in. It helps in that it, we have an even number of premiers with him, and it just works better in a bracket that way. I don't know. His legacy isn't fully cemented, so we'll have to see how this goes. He is the 36th Premier, serving from July 18th, 2017 till today. He first ran for leadership in 2011, placing third. He was ahead of Dana Larson, but behind Adrian Dix and Mike Farnworth. Dix would win that. Now, Dix famously lost the 2013 election to Christy Clark and resigned. Horgan put his name forward in the 2014 leadership race and was acclaimed as the only candidate. His first years weren't particularly... Man, the, the NDP were not, like, super stoked in, at that point, were they? No one wanted the like, job. It was looking job. rough. And so, this is all detailed well in Matter of Confidence. Horgan has a rough couple years until the 2017 election. There are rumors that the party wants to push him out and put David Eby in, but neither of them are keen on the idea because Eby still has a young family, which is part of why he didn't run in 2014. Nevertheless, he finds some energy in the 2017 campaign. You can go back and listen to our episodes from then, and he 
brings the election to a tie and managed to s form government with the BC Greens in a confidence and supply agreement and also managed to convince Daryl Plekis to become the speaker, making the situation tenable. Together, I had to actually go back and remember what happened before the pandemic because what was that time? It feels so long ago. The big first thing they did together was ban corporate and union donations, limit individual donations, and create a cooling off period for lobbyists, like really basic campaign finance reforms that have been done everywhere else. They ended tolls on lower mainland bridges. They ran a lost, they ran and lost a referendum on electoral reform. They raised the carbon tax and brought in the first part of the clean BC plan. The second part we'll talk about today. Uh, they did bring in a housing plan. You can judge for yourself how successful that has been or how it will be, which included a speculation and vacancy tax. ICBC reforms have been rolling out and salvaging that what was a sinking ship. They rebuilt the Human Rights Commission. They brought in the UNDRIP bill. $10 a day childcare is still rolling out. And then COVID started. He was lauded for early handling of it. And I'll just say he remains popular through it. He is also overseeing the overdose emergency. It's not all sunny ways for John Horgan. He's faced his controversies, including the Site C Dam, which is still looking like an incredible boondoggle with no easy decisions. He's been criticized for approach to Indigenous issues with respect to the Site C Dam, as well as the coastal gas link standoff in Wet'suwet'en territory, the challenges over old growth logging in Ferry Creek. More recently, the re proposed reforms to FOI, and they also stalled a bill that would allow people with mental health issues to be involuntarily detained. This isn't the controversies that plagued the 90s NDP, and it's been relatively clean compared to that. Well, there are definitely rhymes of it, like particularly with Ferry Creek, that there are rhymes of uh, 90s NDP controversies. There's no internal scandals. We haven't come out and learned that he's building a deck on public dimes or like handing cash over to casinos or anything like that, at least. That's John Horgan versus Ujal Dessange. Uh, poll will be up on our Twitter at politicospod or politicos.ca slash bracket. You should have until next Thursday to vote. Let's jump into our first segment, Building BC. There's a bunch more bills coming forward through the legislature as well as a big announcement on clean BC. I think maybe the place to start, though, is the is a look back at where the most controversial bill of last week, this change to the FOI, is at. It's cleared second reading, and what was quite notable in the legislature is a number of BC Liberals stood up to give impassioned speeches against it. The Greens did as well. I think some of the Liberals actually pushed amendments to try to refer it to the committee that's studying freedom of information requests and the protection of privacy bill, and that was defeated by the NDP. And all of this was defeated without a single NDP MLA standing up to defend the bill in the legislature. Which is unusual. Usually when a government is trying to pass legislation, the people in the government will at least argue for the legislation. Yeah, usually. It, it ultimately doesn't matter because they have the votes and can whip their party, but Man, it is weird and not a good look that nobody feels confident defending it. And politicians will defend some stinker bills if they think it'll uh, help them out in the long run. So the, the fact that nobody's saying anything, they're pushing it through anyway, is notable. Yeah, you would usually have at least some 
generic talking points about why this is necessary, why this is good, why this is the approach. Even if it's just a yeah, even if it was just something like abuse by the other part by the opposition party or something like that, or find a semi-plausible talking point on it. But nope, even the semi-plausible ones don't seem to be on the deck here. I mean, the one promising factor is it hasn't been pushed all the way through yet so maybe they'll listen we have seen this government back down before on controversial bills and that mental health one i mentioned off the top most notably that said i'm not holding out a lot of hope the fipa fipa bc has email your mla tool and i'll make sure to put the link in the show notes for that if you want to speak up on this bill the other big announcement of the week was the Clean BC second part, the roadmap to 2030 that they dropped early in the week. Uh, basically, when the Greens and NDP released the first part of Clean BC, there was a hole in it. There was something like 25% of the greenhouse gas emissions to hit our 2050 targets were left, or our 2030 targets were left unfulfilled. And the question was, how are we going to get there? And now we have a better sense. I don't think this gets us 100% of the way, but I think it gets us 95% or better. It's a little bit, some of the graphs in here don't have great scale, so it's a little bit hard to tell. But this is an optimistic plan in many ways. A lot of the elements of the first Clean BC are basically just being accelerated. And then some additional tightening of regulations and incentives seem like it will actually do a lot to get us most of the way there. So digging a little into the specifics, they highlight eight pathways that are the series of actions necessary to get us to our carbon targets by 2030. This is to continue increasing the price on carbon. They don't give us specific numbers. They just say we're going to meet or exceed the federal benchmark. I mean, the federal government estimated to what, $170 uh, was what they announced? I believe so. Sometime, yeah, last winter, I think so. Presumably, that means we'll be on a path to 170 and maybe a little ahead of where the feds are going to be on that. That is, which is, go ahead, significant. Like, that starts to have some like real impact on purchasing decisions. Don't get me wrong, the carbon tax is doing stuff, and it's, you know, study after study has shown it's, it changed the trajectory of BC carbon emissions, but, you know, $170 just really drives it home in a way that $50 doesn't. Yeah, and they're going to couple supports for people and businesses with that. It's all a bit vague, but I think the idea is to make sure that the carbon tax continues to hit those who can afford it a little bit easier, even though that it clearly does need to affect purchasing across the board. But you don't really want to hit the lowest income who can't afford to buy an electric vehicle right off the bat. A lot more in here. Next up, requirements for new industry projects to have enforceable plans to reach our legislative and sectoral targets and net zero by 2050. So there's a big focus on industry here. Coupled with that, the third one is stronger regulations that will nearly eliminate industrial methane emissions by 2035, which is quite soon as well. So there's a big push to really structure industry targets and to get us to net zero by 2050 and to hit our targets by 2030, which is great to see. We talked about this before, but there's a comprehensive review of oil and gas royalty system underway. I think we talked about it. We've mentioned it. I, I don't think we've dug into it in detail, but we've definitely noted that it is ongoing. So we don't have the specifics of that. And I think that's where a lot of the criticism of this plan 
comes out is that we still have a lot of subsidies to oil and gas in this province and are pushing ahead with LNG and these kind of product projects. In fact, uh, didn't the Horton government give the LNG project they approved a giant break on the carbon tax, like explicitly exempted it, even though that's a, exactly what the point of a carbon tax is to price carbon for large and small emitters. Oh alike. yeah, I'm not defending it in any way. People like Seth Klein will point out that this government has given more generous subsidies to LNG projects than the previous government that of Christy Clark, who was super pro LNG. I'm really curious to see what comes out of this royalty review. The expert report that fed into it didn't have strong wasn't tasked with coming up with opinions. It just highlighted one possible path is to just make sure ours is harmonized with Alberta's, which I think made a bunch of environmentalists light their hair on fire. Additionally, there will be on more the consumer and other sides of it outside industry, there's going to be new requirements to make all new buildings zero carbon by 2030. So the BC building code will be updated to include greenhouse gas emissions effectively very quickly. It doesn't solve the question of what do we do about existing buildings, which are a big problem, but to push ahead on zero emission buildings and, by 2030 is good to see. And a very expensive problem. Those sorts of retrofits do not come cheap. And if you just mandate it without providing support for it, it's going to cause some pretty massive problems. And if you do fund renovating every building in the province, that's going to be a huge strain on resources for the government. So no matter what, it's a, it's a tricky problem. Yeah, I know the feds are throwing a bunch of money at that problem as well. And that's why you see a lot of rebates for things like heat pumps and whatnot. I just got my $6,000 check, which was really nice. It helped the cost of that, which was very expensive. But it's nice to have electric air blown on me instead of stuff that has gone through fire and includes chunks of that fire that makes your lungs hurt. The Zero emission vehicle push is also being increased. The goal is to have 100% by 2035. That's moving it up a few years. And all of the targets along the way are also substantially increased. I think they want to have something like 90% by 2030 of new vehicle sales be zero emission. And they're also going to develop targets for medium and heavy duty zero emission vehicles, which I don't think we had in the previous plan. I can't recall, but it's, a, it's definitely a very good thing to have because a fairly significant chunk of the transportation emissions comes from heavy transportation, the trucks and stuff that move containers and other loads around the province. And finding a way to electrify those is both challenging, but certainly needed. You, you can get people into light-duty vehicles pretty easily, but replacing a, a semi-truck that needs to haul a container from the port here up to Prince George, that's a lot harder to do by just sticking some batteries and electric motor in the in a vehicle. On the other side of the transportation realm, they want to accelerate our shift towards active transit and public transportation, getting us to 30% by 2030, 40 by 2040, and 50 by 2050, which... Now, do, do they actually commit money? No, so the, the plan because... itself doesn't include spending. And they say some of the spending has already been allocated in existing budgets, but one of the highest, one of the strongest criticisms other many are making is, all right, we need to see the money to connect with this. And that'll come in the spring budget. If we don't see the money, we don't see the plan, basically. But yeah. Yeah, because that, that's the thing. Like, it's great to say we want more people on transit, but um, 
to actually get that going on, it's going to be tough. Like, we're some of the recent talk here in the lo- lower mainlands, the proposed North Shore connection of rapid transit connection. That's several billion dollars in addition to the several billion dollars in ongoing Broadway and Laneley Skytrain work. So it's just one of those things that if, if you don't actually have a commitment to, to spend money, it doesn't get you very far on Yeah, that. build out the entire Transport 2050 plan, and then we'll talk. Let's, yeah, make it 2040. Same amount, just quicker. Now, do remember that when those plans say rapid transit, sometimes they're open to be bus rapid transits, but we need more. The plan also calls for increased clean fuel and energy efficiency requirements, and finally support for clean hydrogen forest-based bioeconomy, and negative emissions technology, your carbon capture and storage stuff. Lots in there. It's about a 30-page document. It's gotten pretty positive reviews from the technocratic kind of people who look at these kind of plans like Clean Energy Canada and Efficiency Canada. I think the more idealistic, ambitious types like Seth Klein and many environmentalists are frustrated that there's still subsidies to oil and gas, and that's where they still have criticisms for it. But yeah, that's Clean BC 2.0. I don't know if we'll be seeing a clean BC3, but it's good to see more here. And yeah, we'll have to wait and see what the oil and gas reviews says to determine how much we can appease the environmentalists versus the, I don't know, pro-digging crew. Uh, also, just like the, the workers and, and the people who make their livelihoods on that stuff, not just the big business types who fund that stuff. Scott, the NDP, also introduced a bill to give local governments more tools to increase housing. We're going to fix the planning departments of the cities. I talked about this a little bit. Are I talked though? about this a little bit with Matthew on Canby Report, which people can go listen to. But I'm curious for your okay. takes on it. Yeah, so, yeah, I do encourage everyone to listen to that. I think you guys covered off what uh, I said. Yeah, the the big thing here with local planning is they are changing the rules from. If a rezoning meets a city's official development plan, right now they can waive a public hearing. Keep in mind, there's already been one to put in place the plan. They can waive that. Now they've just flipped that around to if it meets the official development plan. By default, it doesn't need to go to public hearing. So this is good. Public hearings are a pretty terrible way to run things and actually get decent feedback from the community on it there's a whole bunch of like selection biases and problems that yeah the most normal people are willing to spend six to 12 hours (laughs) uh, of their life waiting in line to talk for five minutes to a city council yeah it's a mess there's a bunch of research that shows uh that the participants are very unrepresentative of the broader community so yeah streamlining those out is generally good because when the uh, uh, ODPs get planned, they, they usually do a broader sweep and engagement than just people who can show up to a city council on a Tuesday night. So all of that's good. But also, it is like literally the least the province can do on this stuff. Just like switching what's the default option on a public hearing for an ODP-compliant project. They're also letting a few like th- projects be delegated to staff or a few approvals be delegated to staff should the city choose. It also seems like minor stuff. It's tweaks. Yeah. They're good tweaks, but they're small tweaks. Very small. So, yeah, the, the 
province should pass this bill and pass it quickly because those are good. But the problems in city governance and how housing permits and processes and rezonings work <clears throat> go much deeper than that. And other places are going after some pretty bold reforms on this from California to New Zealand. Yeah. And it's just disappointing to see the, the province just not really do anything on this file beyond just like these minor Hey, tweaks. they're abolishing the resort municipality of Jumbo Glacier. That affects literally zero people. I mean, that's probably good. I, th there's a part of me that just likes little trivia things, and it, I would find it personally amusing if we continue to have a no-population municipality just there as one of these random weird things about BC. But, yeah, you know, as a good governance measure, it's probably not great. So, yeah, hopefully we'll see more come on the housing front and the municipal front. I guess it also yeah, well, might require the cities themselves to advocate for a bit more. Like part of the problem I mentioned with Matthew in Vancouver is just council's own willingness to subject themselves to unnecessary public hearings. Well, and I mean, that, so that's part of the problem. Is like the, there's some kind of questionable incentives that happen at the local level. And like circling back to the Clean BC thing we were just talking about, one of the things they talked about there is supporting cities to align land use. And it's just tough to get cities to do this stuff. Like there is just a lot of money out there that cities could be having. And in terms of just the economic gains from growing faster by building the housing for the people who want to come, because that means jobs, both in the building of it and providing services to the people who live there. Like it's just, there's no such thing as a free lunch, but it's pretty close to a free lunch of people want to move here, so let's build space for them and let them move here so they can, you know, grow our cities and societies and we can all have more things. And cities just don't go for that. They're If they're leaving huge amounts of resources on the table for that sort of thing, why does the BC government think they're just going to move in a a better direction on this stuff if you like tweak the uh local governance act and you know strongly encourage them in your clean bc documents to do less environmentally destructive land use policies i got nothing i got no defense it's a good start <laughs> it's the smallest start but it's i don't know hopefully not the end Three other bills came forward this week. They're getting busy with the legislation. I did look back, and this is nowhere near as busy as I think it was the third term of the BC Green uh, CASA year when they passed something like 47 bills. They're only up to 26 on the order paper right now. So still some ways to go if they want to make this the most productive session. Maybe that might be next year. It seems like something you do in your second year after you've had some time to consult. But they've been in government for a while. Nevertheless, three more bills to rush through. First, some education changes. They are going to allow First Nations to have, they're going to allow First Nations to be able to certify and regulate teachers who are working under their jurisdiction. I've been doing some work in my work on independent schoolings and a number of, a small number of the schools in BC are Indigenous schools and they actually do get funded at the full rate a public school would be in this province. But this helps give a little bit more authority to those nations by allowing them to certify and regulate their own teachers rather than allowing it all to go through the BC College of Teachers. So 
a nice step. I think there's also a little bit of changes to uh, the BC Teachers Council and some of the other advisory bodies. Neither of us are education experts in this field, but the hope is that this can help create more culturally relevant educational opportunities for First Nations youth. Next up, they're going to ban plastics, or actually they're going to continue expanding how many single-use plastics can be banned in this province. The province has previously done a little bit of work on this, but we've seen municipalities try to bring in their own grocery bag or plastic bag bans, and some of those have been met with challenges of do you have the authority? The government is making it clear they have the authority, and they're also expanding what materials can be banned. Frustratingly, the first regulations probably won't be until early 2023, but at least this is steps towards allowing things to be banned like plastic drinking straws, utensils, stir sticks, and other things that we just don't need going to our landfills. So I guess it'll make the Greens happy. So I don't know. I, like plastic pollution is definitely a problem. At the same time, though, like we can, I think over the past two years, we have very clearly seen the benefits of having certain disposable items and lots of those are best made with plastic so it depends what they um want to dispose of i guess that might be why and there's an extra with, year to do a bit of yeah. more accessibility review hopefully in consultation on each individual item being considered yeah and hopefully someone can come up with a better straw than the horrible paper ones we now have to use the silicon and metal they ones are. aren't bad but they're not cheap so you just have to have your own yeah and then you also have to clean them and then like they're the metal ones it's a good way to chip a tooth i guess if you're careless it it's not great no it's just, like it's a minor quality of life complaint but man i just hate the uh paper straws and all being needful, like, why did we have to make that the thing we focused on? Drink your root beer faster, Scott. Came, Drink your root beer faster. <laughs> when it came to the environment, rather than uh, literally any of the dozens of higher impact things we could have done. <laughs> to be fair, this comes out on the same week as Clean BC two. So thankfully, this is not all the government is like. I would have, I would share your criticism if this was their main signature environmental bill, but this almost got overlooked because of the main stuff they released this week. The final bill that came out this week, I don't think I'm missing any others from the government side. We'll touch in the quick takes about one of the private members' bills that came forward, is that the per vote subsidy is going to be made permanent. This was one of the recommendations coming out of the all-party electoral financing committee that studied the question. They recommended a permanent per vote subsidy of $1.75 and then pegged to uh, inflation and that's exactly what's going to happen it's going to be written into law that the per vote subsidy is $1.75 and then it will be tied to the consumer price index and it will be the elections bc's responsibility to calculate it and give it to the parties which i just want to note that it's really good to see those numbers written into the law itself it proves you can still do that and you don't have to put everything in regulations i didn't realize that i thought everything had to go to cabinet now yeah, no, I am with you on that, that it's not great for everything to be increasingly put off to cabinet rather than the legislation, the legislators doing the legislating on this. So I guess good to see there. I, I think I expect part of that is a thing because the NDP doesn't want to lose a poor vote subsidy when they inevitably end back, end up back in opposition at some point in the future. 
And I guess it's a little harder to repeal the legislation than go through an order in council. Slightly. Although in this province, yeah. we've seen a lot of legislation, football back and forth. Yeah, so it's that's good. I, I still always have mixed feelings on the uh, per-vote subsidy thing. Can't say I particularly like the idea of taxpayer money going to parties generally, because it really is just like the common pod, and it should be going to providing services to and capital projects to British Columbians and not necessarily political parties. On the other hand, the small dollar donation models have just have created some terrible incentives in kind of the political communications world and de-energizing that whole mess may be worth it, even if I'm not super thrilled about the principle behind the per-vote subsidy. It's like the least bad option at the current time until yeah. someone comes up with something better. A, a number of other provinces have per-vote subsidies at this point, like Ontario notably. It's a way to make it work. And that's what's happened in the legislature this week. Can't wait for the next one to see them push through the FOI bill. Let's move into our next segment, the middle class cabinet and those seeking the middle class cabinet and those working hard to join it. Scott, Justin Trudeau has announced his cabinet and the minister of middle class prosperity and those working hard to join it has been abolished. The middle class no longer exists in Canada, or at least... No, I think it's just we've all joined it. We don't have representatives in government. I think that's the biggest takeaway from this. There's a lot of talk about, is this a diverse enough cabinet? Is there enough regional representation? But is there enough middle class representation? Oh, but more seriously. I'm actually, I actually honestly don't know how uh, well off most of these people are. They're pretty well off uh, once you've I been mean, an MP, MP for a while. Pay. Yeah, MP salaries are... Hey, the worst take I think I have to say that I saw on this was the there are too many people in the like 40 to 60 age bracket, which is just like the age you would expect most cabinet ministers to be just as a normal career progression. You, yeah, I, like maybe there would be a couple older than that. There's probably not going to be many younger than that. What a, yeah, what a take. I mean, you, you, Made it made of people like mid to late thirties, but yeah, like no, that definitely I think was the worst. Where's the representation piece I've seen in this so far? Some prominent changes though in this cabinet. We haven't seen many big changes for Trudeau. Like the previous cabinet shuffles have been like two or three people. I think most notably when uh, Jody Wilson Raybould was fired and. That necessitated a slightly larger shakeup, but even that wasn't that many people. But there were some prominent changes in here. I think the biggest thing people were looking at was the Department of National Defense and the Ministry of Indigenous Services. So they were looking for Harjit Sajjan and Carolyn Bennett to lose their jobs, but both just got shuffled. Yeah, Anita Anon has moved from procurement where I think there's a pretty wide consensus that she did a good job there, particularly on procuring vaccine doses. And that has not always been a government body that has been particularly well run. I think procurement is uh, famously a mess in Canada. And 
thought that she came out of there with uh, pretty glowing views, but a lot of people in the Ottawa press gallery and close watchers of what's going on in Ottawa probably speaks well to her competencies and her ability to handle another department that could that that has some rocky issues to resolve, to to say the least. A dozen rocky issues of people under invest involved in sex assault, abuse, and harassment scandals or cover-ups thereof. Not a good time for the senior leadership of our military. On the other hand, Carolyn Bennett, quite lambasted by Jody Wilson-Raybolt for her infamous text and attitude in the Department of Indigenous Services, and so there were a lot of people looking to see if she would be moved out of that. She has been moved to the new Ministry of Mental Health and Addictions, and we get to see if that federal ministry can be as influential as our own provincial one here in BC. The uh, provincial one in BC that is famously not actually delivering any of the mental health and addiction services? Yeah, that one. That one. Moving into Indigenous <coughs> services so, is Patty Hadju from Health, who was pretty well regarded in that file, though. Yeah, I think it's just worth mentioning what the uh, infamous test was, in case any listeners forgot, which was when Jody Wilson-Raybould was critical of the Trudeau government signaling its intentions to move to an election rather than, <clears throat> I think it was clean drinking water, one of the many outstanding uh, Indigenous issues in the country. She was critical of that, and then Caroline Bennett tested her just pension, as if it was the only rationale for being critical of that was that Jesse Wilson-Raybould wanted to see her pension vest. It was nasty. Yeah, yeah. Lots of other things going on. Stephen Guibault is one of the most prominent moves. He goes from Minister of Heritage, where he had a hell of a time getting pilloried over his explanations of Bill C-10, which was the online regulation bill that he described very differently at very different times and sometimes seemingly contrary to what the bill actually said. He's now going to be our environment yeah. minister. So, this is particularly notable because when uh, he was first elected, it was widely noted that he was coming from an uh, environmental activist background and that his dream job in Ottawa was to be the Minister of Environment. So, there is no way this isn't a promotion for him. And yet, he did such a bad job at Heritage that you got to wonder why reward him after completely just getting the government raked over the coals over uh, C-10. Maybe they were happy with how that bill was progressing. Maybe they thought, you know what, this is the <laughs> you know, kind I, at this of approach moment, we want. I think it's more likely, at this moment, I think it's more likely that he's incriminating photos of the Prime Minister than people liked his performance on C-10. The other speculation out there is that Trudeau wants to go hard on the environment. There was an abacus poll this week showing some stark shifts in attitudes towards being more pro-environment and the general support for development over environment is starting to shift. And so, there's room for the Liberals to go hard on climate targets, especially with COP coming up. I don't know. I think it's actually started as of today, so... Top starting. There we go. We'll have to see what he does in the file with all of these ministers. Like Trudeau and the PMO do exercise 
quite a bit of control, it seems, from what we've seen over this government. And so, the approach they're going to take is going to be as free or as constrained as the head office decides. I think the other notable, well, there's a few other notable ones. There's lots, but Melanino Jolie, do you want to talk about foreign affairs? Yeah, she's our new foreign affairs minister. I think generally seen as one of the most important ministries in government, or at least ought to be seen that way. This government doesn't really seem to have a foreign policy as such. But I think generally for most governments, it's seen as a, a very important position. Like uh, Stephen Dubois, he, she'd had a ro- rocky kind of start in Ottawa. And it's a little interesting to see a, another promotion after for a minister that hasn't always performed smoothly on that. Yeah, she had previously been in the Heritage Department, which was not, I don't know, this government does not seem to know what it's doing with the Heritage Department. It's like trying to appease Quebec, in a, but in a way that does poorly for everyone yeah, else. The, if I recall, there's some controversies around like Netflix taxes and regulations that were a little rocky on that. I don't think there's a lot of governments that I don't think have particularly had a great vision for what the Heritage Department should be. Warren Kinsella has a column that I'm trying to find what was her scandal. He flags Canada's 150. 150th birthday celebrations noting indigenous people protested it which i don't hold that hard against her there was apparently a joke there was apparently something that happened when they were building a holocaust memorial and she forgot to mention jews on the plaque in ottawa and some scandal about a hockey rink yeah like nothing big like nothing on like the debose c10 profile i think just like a lot of small missteps during her early time at the the department. To be fair, most many of those I think were quite early and so she has yeah. seemingly kept her head down and done the work at or was she in the interim tourism, I think? And economic development, I believe. Right. And yeah, and she did manage um, to open a few uh regional economic development agencies. And notably she also co chaired the most recent campaign, which I'm not sure anyone could call that a successful campaign, even though they did technically win. They came from behind and they put themselves don't Pay attention well, to how they, they put fi- themselves yeah. in the behind. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, other notable changes, I think. Uh, Joyce Murray, now the Minister of Fisheries and Oceans. Local uh, MP. Pretty much always goes, yeah, pretty much always goes to coastal MP, but more often than not, that's an Atlantic Canada MP. But to see BC uh, get a chance to helm the uh, DFO. And maybe we'll get some more attention paid to salmon stocks and the importance of those. Uh, the other prominent BCer in cabinet is Jonathan Wilkinson, who is now over at Natural Resources. He moved from environment. There's a few other new people in cabinet. Randy Boissonneau from is the only minister coming from Alberta. He gets the much vaunted tourist ministry. Yeah, so that was the other thing. Like a lot of commenters noted was that Alberta and the rest of the prairies did not get much representation in this cabinet, and some of that's due to the fact that there are only two Alberta MPs, one of whom is currently under investigation by Legends Canada and possibly the RCMP, I'm not sure, for um, messing with opponents' flyers and mailboxes. Just the dumbest thing to do. Yeah. But yeah, there, there are a couple of Manitoba MPs that also didn't really get much of a, a showing here. So that, I think, is going to be a, a point of contention. There's already a lot of 
columns linking the Gibo appointment at environment with the general lack of prairie representation. There's also a few notable absences from this cabinet. Most prominently among them is Mark Garneau, but Jim Carr and Bardish Chagger have also not found their way back into the latest cabinet. Garneau is particularly interesting because he was Ford Affairs Minister. I think his first portfolio was transportation. He's held a bunch of fairly senior portfolios. I think generally a pretty well-liked person. And it's interesting to see that he just is not in cabinet at all. And there's got to be an interesting story behind that, but one that doesn't appear to be out in public I'm yet. just going to wildly speculate that Trudeau doesn't like astronauts anymore for no <laughs> particular reason. Yeah, definitely has any bad experiences there. Yeah, I, I, the rumor mill is saying an ambassadorship, but it's still really weird to do that in the days after an election. Not really days. We're now, what, like a month and a bit after the election? The the near post-election time. We're in no rush here. It's not like we're in a pandemic or any other emergency. There's nothing for the government to be doing. Yeah, I mean, you can wait two months to call Parliament You can back. go speak in parliaments around the world. Yeah, that, that's such a weird thing. I didn't re- even realize that uh, Trudeau was in Europe until I saw like a tweet from him earlier today talking about how he was meeting with Mark Rutte and speaking at the, the Dutch parliament, which like, it's just weird to go to another parliament before you go to your own parliament after an election. Yeah. <laughs> so overall, like a bit of a mix up, it's still gender balance cabinet. There's some, it meets some tests of diversity. It's, there's some pretty competent people in here. I'm curious really to see what happens on the environment file but and the foreign affairs file but i'm not that optimistic environment foreign affairs and defense are the three i'm going to be watching i'm pretty pessimistic about where defense is going to go because Uh, i think i think defense being being a somewhat pessimistic thing is just like being a pretty good rule generally we're not a country that handles defense policy particularly well even when there aren't scandals going on but they seem to have made a, a good pick for the the role. So it'll be, be interesting to see how much that ship can be righted. But yeah, that I think the D&D scandals are probably the thing to watch there. I'm not particularly hopeful we're going to get an updated de- defense policy or anything, even though we really could use one. Well, overall, I think you can safely prepare to be disappointed. Let's close off with some quick takes. I mentioned a private member's bill. We have the first one of the second half of this session in the legislature, the BC Greens, Sonia now has an introduced an updated version of their move to ban contra- conversion practices in BC. The language is being updated from conversion therapy to p- conversion practices because they're not therapy. And it was getting awkward putting them in quotes every time. You can't change people's sexual orientation or gender identity or expression I feel like, conver- yeah, I, I feel like, I, I get why they made the change, but I feel like conversion practices is just a new term everybody's going to have to learn. Like, conversion therapy, I think it had reached the point where everybody got what it was, and and now it just feels weird to have to go do the explainer on it, because it's, like, even less clear what that's referring to. I, I don't know. If I was, if I didn't know the context here, I would assume this is, like, an, a bill to stop Jehovah's Witnesses from knocking on your door or something. like Horribly unconstitutional. 
Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it, it, the, the change just feels like it's one of those things that make it, makes it less, not more clear, even though I get the reason why they're going for that. Uh, the bill is inter- interesting. It includes some criticism or at least input from LGBTQ2S plus communities on the first one. So I think it expands definitions in a few places. It applies to adults and minors and things like that rather than so it's a bit broader than the original one, but that's just what happens with two years of additional uh, feedback. What I th- well, and and two years of the NDP doing this weird foot dragon that I still cannot wrap my head around why they haven't moved on this in like the four years now they they've been in government. So their claim is the federal government will act on it, and since then we've seen the federal government twice introduce a bill to add it to the criminal code, and both times that bill has been killed by their own inability to move legislation through Parliament before they take an opportunity opportunistic chance to shut down parliament so yeah that they have the federal government has promised to do it in the first hundred days now the greens and advocates of this bill will point out that it can supplement a criminal code ban by making sure it's a offense to charge msp for this even indirectly like all of these bans are largely symbolic it's such an underground practice that it's hard to really root out but it is a signal and in that way it was quite actu- interesting to see BC liberal leadership contender Gavin Dew latch on to this signal and say he would support this bill if he were leader of the BC liberals and he supports it as just a citizen i find that a little less interesting like the, there are some religious conservatives in the the BC liberals for sure but this is also a party that has, at various points, had good representation in the kind of more urban areas, the area, and has had LGBT members before. And like, it's it's not a thing that I would expect to be particularly surprising for a liberal leader to support, or a potential liberal leader in this case. It's not that out of line with kind of where the party is or has been on stuff. I think this is mostly a good jumping off point to segue into the second story I wanted to talk about, which is the candidate, now not candidate, who probably wouldn't have endorsed the bill. And that's Aaron Gunn, who one week ago, almost today, it's not even a week, the BC Liberals decided to nix his nomination and say, no, thank you. We don't want you in our club. Aaron Gunn will not be running for leader of the BC Liberal Party. Yeah, so they didn't. He didn't pass the Green Light Committee. It was always, I don't know. It's definitely better for the Liberals that he isn't running for them, but also rejecting candidates can have its own challenges with it. Like it, it there will definitely be grumblings. I still, he, I've been hearing grumblings even as it's been uh, passed out of the general kind of big D discourse and and media coverage so like, there's clearly some people who are not happy with the decision on that there which i suppose is to be expected i don't know really like the the liberals were going to have a tough time with this no matter what the moment he announced I, this was all upside for the ndp no matter what the decision ended up being still it's better that for the party, I think that he's not going to be at the debates and not going to be on the ballot 
at the end. Yeah, I think for the liberals, making the decision quickly was the best they had to do here. If they had let this linger or float around and be a debate like should he shouldn't be in, it's better to just pull that band-aid off if you're going to kick him out, if you're going to have him. They went one way. I think it was the harder choice to make. And I think it was, like you say, probably the better choice for the party itself. We've seen what reactionary populist type candidates can do to a race to really derail it and fuel just a lot of anger. Like we've seen this string of stories in the last couple of weeks that we haven't really gotten into here, but has been focused on like how Facebook has purposefully monetized outrage and promoted that like to the point where your algorithm is overly dictated by the angry reacts over the heart reacts. We have an angry internet. We don't need to fuel that into our political parties and our political process in this kind of way. Those voices are still out there and we need to figure out how to manage them. But yeah, having it there, not particularly uh, productive. Nevertheless, this has led one Laurie Thronis to finally tear up his membership card in the BC Liberal Party. I didn't know he'd still kept that. Yeah, I was kind of a little surprised about that too. Uh, I also was surprised. I kind of thought after the last election, he was like, not just wasn't a candidate, but just out of the party in general. Yeah, I guess. I, I thought I recall him saying he was going to be leaving at that point, even if they weren't let him sit as a, or even if they weren't going to let him sit as a liberal after he, or if he had one, I guess. I mean, maybe he's, maybe he did, maybe he made it up this time. It's hard to tell. It's always a bit vague when you get kicked out of caucus, but it's not clear if you're still a party member. What I also found interesting about Thronus's statement is he said Gunn would have welcomed him back as a candidate, which tells me a lot in very few words. But there you have it. Free speech is dead in the BC Liberal Party. But they're not the only party having leadership quarrels and strife and issues. The Green Party of Canada is still in the news. Somehow they have managed to make this story continue. Uh, So this latest round of just the utter mess of Anime Paul's fight with the party executive continued this week as... It was revealed that the ballots have gone out and Green Party members are now voting on whether or not to review her leadership. This is notably after she had announced she is resigning, but before the actual formal resignation has taken place because there is still an ongoing dispute over some legal fees and exit costs. The party had started this process to launch a leadership review as she was resigning, it might have been in the day before, and I guess they can't stop it. So members are being asked, do you support Anime Paul's leadership? As she has said, she doesn't want it, but she still has it, which is a mess. And so we're now in the situation where they're trying to say, you can't quit, we fire you. But here we are. Also, the party is broke and has laid off more staff. So that's just swell. I really do feel for everyone who has supported and been involved in the federal Green Party. This is worse than, like, maybe the bloc has done this bad. They had that really rough period, but this is worse than, like, the liberals went through. The NDP has rarely gone through anything this bad. I don't know if the Greens recover from this as a federal party. It's going to be tough. Also, poor Mike Morris, elected and just has to ignore everything his party is doing. 
Oh, he's, he's probably best to just try and keep his head down and hope this gets passed by as quickly as possible. And, I don't know, in three to four years when they're, or, I don't know, 18 months when they're back at the polls, this is history. Good luck. And finally, in terms of history and bringing things back, we have this story from the Fifth Estate and CBC looking into a number of files they've uncovered about the Afghanistan withdrawal that implicate that Canadians knew the Americans were planning to withdraw. And we did very little to support the interpreters we'd been worked with. In fact, we just didn't act to save their lives and get them out of the country when we could have taken it more seriously and more urgently. And hell, maybe this is why Mark Garneau isn't foreign minister anymore. Yeah, that might be the explanation on that. So yeah, our government had known for a while that the U.S. presence in Afghanistan was winding down and eventually going to end. We ended our own presence there. The combat mission ended a decade ago, and our, I think, last real presence after that ended in 2014 like we we had we should have gotten these people out then but we very much should have gotten them out once it became clear last year that the u.s was going to be doing their withdrawal from afghanistan and we just didn't what's particularly notable and that's a to me about this story is robert saint alban who is named as a legislative assistant or a former legislative assistant in the House of Commons is like named and on the record in this story saying they, the government, had so much time to act on this and they didn't. Robert goes on to say, I don't want to say they didn't care, but it was that they didn't seem all that interested. It just seemed like another immigration case to them. So that there was just like a lack of taking seriously these warnings and this necessity to bring the people we've worked with and who put their lives at risk. Yeah, like, th- these people put their lives at risk to help Canadians in Afghanistan. And we owe it to them to get them out safely and take care of them. And we failed at that as a country. And this should have been a bigger deal during the election when this was all going down. And it's really unfortunate that it wasn't and that in the lead-up, the the government just neglected this. And that has been Playcoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playcoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playcoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Playcoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY, 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Wash your hands and stay home. Thanks for listening.